Last week, we did something that was, uh, well, it, we, I was, the name of the message was The Proof of Love. And uh, <laughs> for those of you who weren't here last week, for me, just to state the premise is, is going to be a, a kind of a, a dive into the deep end of the pool. But, but let, me, let me try to do this because I want to kind of take up where we left off. The whole message was an answer to the question, you know, how can we trust a God when there's evil in the world? And the answer was that the presence of evil is not the proof that there is no God. But the presence of evil in the world is actually the proof that perfect love exists. Because what is perfect love? Perfect love is a love that sets the beloved perfectly free. That's it. Well, if you are set perfectly free to choose what you're going to choose, how do you know that you've been set perfectly free? When you choose every alternative that's available to you. You choose love, you choose not love. You choose function, you choose dysfunction. And that's what we're seeing in the world around us. And so the presence of evil is actually the proof of love, the proof of a perfect love that set us free in the beginning to choose love, which is the only way that we can love as God loves, the only way that we can, we can reflect who God is, the only way to understand that we are created in his image is to have that choice. So I know that's, that's a little heavy and cerebral and all that sort of thing. And, and what's the point of even making a statement like that? It's because we are doing everything that we can to preserve and protect the notion of perfect love in our lives. Because as soon as we lose that, then we lose this connection with God. We lose this trust in God's absolute love. And so we're trying to do that. But just this notion, just this understanding, even if you got what I just said, even if you agreed with what I just said, it brings no comfort, especially when the evil is hitting us right upside the head. What brings the comfort is when we actually move into the risking of love ourselves. And love is always a risk. Every time we really love, we become really vulnerable. And that is a position that God put himself in to give us the choice to return love or not. And that's the position we put ourselves in. But when we do, what happens in that real, pure love relationship is the experience. As soon as we feel that kind of love flowing out of us, then, and only then, do we have the first inkling of understanding how that love is flowing to us. And this is what the scriptures are telling us. You know, not hitting it on the head. Yes, you have to read between the lines. But between the scriptures themselves and 2,000 years of Christian tradition, Christian teaching, we see this over and over played out in the lives of the saints, if you will, the lives of the mystics, the lives of the contemplatives, those who really are exemplifying what Jesus is all about. And so... Jesus is encapsulating this, I think, very well at at Matthew 5. Take a look right there. Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. This is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is trying to redefine the law. Jesus is trying to get the people to approach life in a different way. Not just from the sterile place of following rules, but from actually bringing presence actually bringing connection to all of their relationships. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, of course, this is not a quotation of Scripture. 
you know, Jesus' scriptures that preceded him. This is the oral tradition of the Pharisees. The Pharisees taught this specifically. You were supposed to keep enmity in your heart for someone who had not begged your forgiveness and gone through the protocol of righting the wrongs and reestablishing the parity, the balance between aggrieved parties. So you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is doing a lot of things in a very short space here. First, he's talking about something that is just mind-bending to the people that he's talking about, because they were so used to this tradition for several hundred years that the Pharisees were leading the people. And he's just taking it and turning it on its head. It's hard for us to to imagine the kind of disorientation, the kind of outrage something like this would spark the injustice of it all. Love someone who has hurt me, love someone who hasn't gone through the protocol, the proper protocol of forgiveness and making amends. Are you kidding me? Really? And then he says, if you do this, if you do love your enemy, if you do pray for those who persecute you and use you abusedly, then you'll be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In that culture, we have to understand what he's saying here. To be the son of the king, to be the son of any patriarch in another context, if that son was sent out, it was as if the patriarch, the king, were standing right there in front of you. In a sense, the son was the avatar of the father, avatar of the king, that is the king embodied in this person who's standing right in front of you. And who is this father? The father is in heaven, Shemaiah, heaven. It was a place of complete connection and unity and oneness, as opposed to earth, which is the place of individual form and individual function. So this father who is in unity, if you love your enemies, if you pray for those who persecute you, then you will be as if the father were standing here in your spot completely in unity. For the Father does what? He sends the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He sends the rain to fall on the good and on the evil. Everything, all this provision, all this love, all this sustenance is delivered indiscriminately like rain and sunshine. It just falls. And if you're there, you get it. If you're standing in the shade, you don't get it. That's your choice. But there is no pre-qualification on God's part. There's no judgment on God's part. Who gets, who doesn't. It's just all on, all the time. Like trying to take a drink from a fire hose. It's just always there, all the time. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. So, if this is how we are supposed to love, if this is the way that we love like Father, if this is how we reflect the glory of Father, as we talked about in that Arrhenius quote, last week. If this is how we know how we are loved, when we love this way, what does it really mean to love the enemy? And how do we know if we're actually doing it? Which is another question. Got a call oh, several days ago, sort of toward the middle of the week by a friend of mine, longtime friend, and he was having a hard time. So he gave me a call and he told me in the course of the 
conversation that he was going to take his RV, his motorhome, and he wanted to drive up to Canada and stay for at least three months up there in Canada because he just couldn't stand being a part of the United States anymore. <laughs> so right away when someone says something like that, you kind of know where they're, you think you know, you assume you know. I assumed I knew where he was going with this. I, okay, you know, maybe there's some uh, political leanings that we hadn't fully discussed, and he was a little harder left than I thought, you know, maybe really upset with the political landscape and what's gone, but you know what, that wasn't it. As we, as we dug a little deeper, as we talked a little bit more, he was kind of popping up left, right, and center on various issues that are hot, hot buttons to all of us today. What it was was that he was genuinely grieved at the nature of the relationships in our country today. He was just really torn apart by all the relationships, whatever they happened to be, whether that was race relationships or political relationships, religious, social, cultural, generational. Just the, 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 the quality of our discourse lately and what was happening out there. And he was ashamed to be a part of it all. So I asked him a a pertinent question. How much news are you watching each day? (laughs) Turned out it was between uh, two and three hours a day plus internet. And it's just like, oh my gosh. You know, you take a steady diet of that. You know, it's kind of like Ghostbusters 2, you know, that pink slime that was traveling beneath the city. It's like drinking from that every day. I mean, good Lord. You know, so there was three points that I tried to make to him, and I don't know how it got through, if it got through, but, you know, the first one was, if you want to run off to Canada because you're ashamed of this, because you're on overload, all these things, you know, the first thing to remember is, wherever you go, there you are, right? (laughs) There's no use and there's no upside to running away from unhealed and unresolved pain in your life. Because wherever you go, it's going to precede you there. It's going to find you. It's going to grab you. It's still going to be a part of your life. It's not about running away from the pain that hurts. It's about running to the next healthy thing. You could stay, but you choose to go. That's a completely different calculus, something completely different. You know, certainly there are better places and there are worse places to live, right? But if we think the place is going to fix us, that's where we're really going to end up frustrated. You know? So think about that. Now, you're looking at the Canadian grass, and it looks a heck of a lot greener than our grass. You know? But I'll tell you what. It reminded me of a, a, line, a line from a movie that I just loved, where this young girl was talking to a Catholic priest, and it was just kind of an amazement. You, know, you, you gave up a wife and children and family and everything to become a priest. Why would you do that? And he said, well, you know what? You end up realizing that Every choice you make in life, you're just trading one set of circumstances for another. And it's so true. There are positives and negatives to every choice we make. Unintended consequences to every choice we make. Everything and every circumstance is a mixed bag of good things and bad things. And people are just people wherever you go. As soon as you get to Canada, you're going to be able to see the warts and the things that are going on up there that you don't see from this side of the fence. And then there you are with all your unresolved stuff in another imperfect place. And your situation is not much improved. If you're looking for an ideal place, guess what? It doesn't exist. The ideal place is our participation fully in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. That's the ideal place. 
Not the place itself, not the circumstances themselves, but the heart with which we enter into those places. And the third point that I wanted to make to him was, that I did make to him, was that the media by nature is always showing you the outliers. The media by nature is showing you the extremist or the extreme situations, not showing you what is normally going on. See, in fact, in a very real sense, be really glad that the news is so bad. Because at the moment that the news is good, that means that's the outlier. That's the extreme. See, the truth of the matter is that people are like that haystack. Remember that, that, that Q shape that we, we talk about where you know, you've got a few of the saints and a few of the you know, sociopaths as outliers in the small part, but right in the middle of that haystack is a bunch of hardworking people who are decent and trying to live their lives as best that they can. That's what's really going on in our country. What we see on the news is all of the outliers, the edges, not that center, because the center is predictable. It's boring. It doesn't put butts in seats. It doesn't put eyeballs on the screen, right? Social media is bringing out the worst in us as well, but it's the outliers. If this were not true, if most of the people in our country, I suppose in the world, of course, weren't in the middle of that haystack, decent, hardworking people, then the trains wouldn't run on time. Nothing would be happening. We couldn't exist because our society is built on that backbone, built on the presumption that most people are going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing and living their lives. But it's the other ones that are getting all the grease. And if you're spending two to three hours plus internet time, that's what you're going to be seeing over and over. And of course... The implication is, this is everything that's out there, you know. Now, also, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that, that there isn't anything wrong out there. Of course, that would be sticking my head under the sand. And I also am noticing that more and more decent, hardworking people are being drawn into this kind of thinking and, and falling down on hard, extreme uh, opinions or, or positions, and then, of course, expressing those online. And I've heard people even talk about the fact that they see a civil war coming. I don't know if that's the case. But certainly it appears that we're entering a new era like the 60s were. Those of you can remember the 60s. And that was one of the most disruptive decades in, in recent history. In terms of the rioting, in terms of the violence, in terms of the assassinations, are we moving into another time like that? It could be. Does that mean that the whole fabric of our nation is falling apart? It could be, but we survived the 60s all right. There were the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the aughts. And, and so we have to keep the balance. We have to try to maintain a certain equilibrium as we're dealing with all of this out there. What's happening? What's happening in our world that is causing all of this ruckus, that is causing good people to want to move to Canada? You know, what, what's going on? And in a word, of course, it always comes down to this, it's fear. People are afraid. The world is getting crazier. There's no doubt about it. You know, things are destabilizing. Old world orders that have been in place for hundreds of years are shifting and changing. And that makes everybody a little bit nuts. You know, 
We can tell that things aren't going to look the same in the near future as they do now. They're all changing. We're in transition. Transition is always a difficult place to be. So people get scared. They're wondering if what they have they're going to be able to keep. They're wondering if what they have their children are going to be able to have. I mean, there's these natural fears that occur. And when people get scared, they build walls. Scared people build walls. I remember the first time that I went to the Midwest. First time, I ended up in Ohio. I was there with a, with a traveling musical group. And we got there, and this group, we, we didn't stay in hotels. We just stayed in people's houses. And so we stayed in this one house in this neighborhood that looked pretty much like in any other neighborhood in California that I was used to. Went into the house, went out into the backyard, and it just blew my mind. There were no fences whatsoever. I don't know if any of you remember neighborhoods in the Midwest. I don't know what they look like now, but back then it was incredible. There's this whole street of houses. I'm standing on the back porch, and there's nothing but this huge green belt. And then the row of houses on the other side, the back of that side of the street. And there's kids running up and down, and dogs and frisbees going. It was just like this huge park. No fences whatsoever. I mean, here everything was all subjugated. You had a little fence. No, I couldn't believe it. It was so cool. You know, I don't know if they locked their doors. I know a lot of people in small towns haven't locked their doors. What is it like now, 40 years later? Did the fences go up? Are the doors locked? Are there bars on the windows? When people are afraid, that's what you see. You see the walls. You see the bars. You see the locks. You see everybody trying to defend and hold on. Scared people build walls. Walls are a symbol of fear. Think about it that way. Walls are the manifestation of fear. They're the proof of fear. You're just talking about the proof of love. Here's the proof of fear. Walls are the proof of fear. Scared people build walls. Real ones, like we're talking about, but they also build mental walls, emotional walls, religious walls, political walls, social walls, cultural walls. All of those things that we were just talking about where the level of discourse and level of relationship has fallen away in our country is because people are building walls around each one of those areas of their lives and defending them tooth and nail. Now, to be, a, to be effective, to really give us a sense of security, a wall has to be really tall and it has to be really thick. And we must believe in the wall. We had to absolutely be certain that our wall is going to hold. I wanted to read just this little bit from Bertrand Russell. Take a look what he has to say. The whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wiser people so full of doubts. Let doubt prevail. Think about that for just a second. The whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves, but wiser people so full of doubt. These fanatics are the extremists, the ones that we're hearing about on the news, the ones that we're seeing and talking about on Facebook and and social media. Extremists are always fear-driven. Always fear-driven. Now that's a paradox, isn't it? Because certainly fanatics and extremists don't seem to be fearful. In fact, they seem the exact opposite. They seem absolutely certain of themselves. They're domineering. They're overbearing. They're bulldozing over every other opinion in their path. If you get in their way, they're just going to run you down. 
the last thing in the world that we would describe these people is fearful. But think about it. Most of us don't think of ourselves as being fearful either. Sometimes when I talk about fear as opposed to love, people say, well, I'm not afraid, I'm not fearful. You know, So we don't think of ourselves that way. But what do these fanatics do? What do these extremists do? Not only are they absolutely sure of their rightness, they're absolutely sure of your wrongness. Right? And they have a standard, they have a litmus test for whether you are acceptable or not. They have no tolerance for wrongness, no tolerance for those who are wrong, or for anyone who's not like themselves, doesn't believe what they believe or live it the way they live. And this is your dead giveaway. The presence of walls is a proof of fear. Every one of these intolerances is a wall between us and someone else. It's the proof of the fear that is driving the judgment, the separation, the preferences, the opinions. All of these are walls that we build around and we defend them. So no matter how self-assured someone seems to be, a person behind any wall is afraid. That's why they're behind the wall. They're protecting something. They're afraid of the siege. And any certainty in our lives acts like a wall when it comes up against somebody else. It creates an enemy out of anybody on the other side of that wall. What can you know about this love of the enemy? How can you know if you're loving like the Father? The first thing you do is check out your walls. What walls have you built? What walls are you crouching behind? What walls are you defending to the death from the turrets? Now, this is a metaphor, right? doesn't mean you have to go and tear down the fences around your house. That's not what I'm saying. Or take the bars off. Use your discretion there, obviously. Unless you're in Ohio, then go for it. But I hope that the principle is getting through. Pay attention to what offends you. You want to know if you're loving like the Father? You want to know if you are moving into the love of the enemy? Pay attention to what offends you, what angers you, what triggers you. What is an offense? What is an offense? But one of our walls being breached. One of our walls being scaled. That's what offends us. It's the fear that the wall is not going to hold. And so we have to push back. You know, fight or flight. That, that thing hits us, it triggers us, and we have to do something about it. If we didn't have a wall, if we were loving as the Father loves, then we would be giving complete freedom to those other people, and we wouldn't be offended when they choose differently than we choose. It's the walls that we're defending. It's our fear that is driving us. Now, Again, not only is this a metaphor, but it's a generalization. But hopefully the point is getting across. Let me read something from the Chinese tradition. Xin Xin Ming. Do you know that, Michelle? Xin Xin. It literally means faith in mind. And it was written by Seng Su, who was 7th century Chinese philosopher. But I'm reading it because it so dovetails with everything that Jesus is saying. But it says it in a different way that maybe we can get behind. He writes... The way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. 
When love and hate are both absent, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the slightest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing in the world can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. When thought objects vanish, the thinking subject vanishes. As when the mind vanishes, objects vanish. I know that got a little out there at the end, but you get the sense of what he's talking about. Right? Maybe I read two lines too far, huh? It happens, especially with Chinese thought. Jesus says it much more succinctly. Look at him in Matthew 7. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It's the same process. Do you see? Don't judge. Don't discriminate. Don't set one thing up against another. Don't set one person up against another. Don't, in your fear, grab onto an opinion, grab onto a position that you have to invest all your certainty into just to feel like you can breathe, just to feel like you can get through another 24 hours. And then everybody else has to be wrong so that you can be right. Don't judge, because the standard that you use is already being applied to you. You're the one living in fear. Even as you project it out to everybody else, you're the one that has already has, has to endure the reality that you have decided to accept, that you have decided to try to project. This is what Jesus is telling us. Letting go of these preferences, letting go of these standards, these opinions for acceptance, for inclusion, You can be in my group, you can be in my club, you can be in my party. When? To let go of these? As soon as we have a preference or an opinion, we have to defend it with walls. That's how this works. Richard Rohr says it really well as well. Take a listen. He says, by contrast, probably the most obvious indication of non-centered Eccentric people, these are people who are unbalanced, non-centered, eccentric, he calls them, is that they are, frankly, very difficult to live with. Every one of their ego boundaries must be defended, negotiated, or worshipped. Their reputation, their needs, their nation, their security, their religion, even their ball team. They convince themselves that these boundaries are all they have to worry about because they are the sum total of their identity. They become these things. You can tell if you have placed a lot of your eggs in these flimsy baskets if you are hurt or offended a lot. You can hardly hurt saints because they are living at the center and do not need to protect the circumference or feelings and needs. Eccentric people, though, are a hurt waiting to happen. In fact, they will create tragedies to make themselves feel alive. I am told that personnel work now represents 80% of the time and energy that American companies have to expend. That's an incredible statistic. 
You might even say that a certain degree of contemplative seeing is actually necessary for the effective life of an institution or a community. Toward the end of his life, Carl Jung said that he was not aware of a single one of his patients in the second half of life whose problems could not have been solved by contact with what he called the numinous, and we would call God. Numinous is a word that means contact with the divine, contact with with the higher power, a a spiritual encounter experience that, that that is tangible, that you feel, right? So he's saying that none of his patients in the second half of life whose problems, none of them, whose, their problems could not have been solved by contact with the numinous, what we call God. An extraordinary statement from a man who had no great love for institutional religion. In fact, he was quite critical of it. I believe that we have no real access to who we really are except in God. Only when we rest in God, can we find the safety, the spaciousness, and the scary freedom to be who we are, all that we are, more than we are, and less than we are? Only when we live and see through God can everything belong. In other words, only when we're living, only when in the risking of love ourselves, can we rest in that spaciousness, can we rest in God, can we really know what God's all about. That's it. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. You know, that's what Seng Su is talking about that we couldn't quite understand. Carl Jung is saying, he's talking about the second half of life. He's talking about this period in our lives when we stop focusing outward, building outward systems, and we turn inward and we look for identity, we look for meaning and purpose in a completely different direction. We're looking toward this numinous experience. We're looking toward God in the second half of life. And the second half of life doesn't need to be late in life chronologically. It usually is, but it doesn't have to be. Whenever we start finding out who we really are by letting down the walls that we have built in our lives, the second half begins. Everything that we built up in the first half of life, we have to be willing to let go in the second half if we're going to be able to Go where God is taking us. Think about Paul. Think about the Apostle Paul. He certainly had walls up, didn't he? But we know of him as a young man defending his faith, defending Judaism against these upstart followers of Jesus, persecuting them, executing them, defending as hard as he could. And when he switched sides, after Damascus and came to the other side, then he's defending the followers of Jesus against the circumcisers, the ones who want to impose you know, the, the law and Judaism on these followers. And then he is defending against all of the upstarts and the different schools of thought that are popping up on every corner and trying to hold the line. I mean, the whole first part of his ministry is defending this and defending that. But what happened toward the end of his life? Take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, at verse 10. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a sea change. Read that, and then read Galatians, and then come back and read this, and then read Philippians 4.11. I have learned to be content 
in whatever circumstances I am. This is, as I've heard said, an old guy trying to get into heaven. Nah, it's not like that. This is someone who has learned to start letting go of all those distinctions. This is someone who is starting to let go of those hard lines and preferences, who's seeing that something matters more than the position, that there's a relationship to be had that matters more, that a moment can be perfect even when it's not what you expected or wanted, just by your immersion in it. Paul has learned to love the enemy the way Jesus is talking about it by not seeing enemies under every rock anymore. We create the enemies often simply by putting them on the other side of the wall that is the litmus test for our acceptance of them, our inclusion of them. This is where he's going with this. And it's so beautiful to see It's so beautiful that our scriptures capture that growth. They don't present Paul as a finished product at the beginning. They show him working through all of these things in his letters, in the books written about him, and getting to a place where he's learning to love the enemy and just come down where Jesus comes down. We can decide when the second half of our life begins. We don't have to wait for the, for the chronology to catch up with us. But it is easier in the second half of life. If we don't begin the process of taking down our walls, life will start doing it for us, simply through the aging process, simply through what happens. And there's something about just getting the perspective. You know, it's amazing to me, being as old as I am now, to have watched children grow up, get married, to have that kind of perspective, to watch movie stars get old and drop down the other side. You know, it's just interesting. You know, you can see that. And then you look in the mirror and you see it in yourself, right? But just to have the ability to see that much road changes the way that you look at things. I don't know, for most of you, does a year just seem to just go by like that? I mean, here we are practically in November and, and yet, when you were little, remember how it seemed like summer was forever? You know, what's up with that? Someone put it to me this way. When you're two, a year represents half your life. When you're 62, do the math, right? <laughs> and so maybe that's what it is. It's something about just getting older gives you this perspective, gives you this longer view, and then changes the way that you prioritize naturally. There's a, there's a little essay that I, I kind of edited down that I think is perfect, and I want to read this to you because it, it's, it just seems to capture this. It's called You Get Old. He writes, You get old, and life gets small. Not meager or pinched, just small. You don't buy groceries for a week anymore, two hours in the local market drenched in sweat with a grocery list that unrolls like the Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> No, you get old. (laughs) You shop every day with your list written on the cover of a matchbook. (laughs) Two pork chops, a can of green beans, four ears of corn, two for tomorrow, and two rolls of toilet paper. You get old. People don't notice you. You sit at a bar sipping your Jim Beam Black when a pretty woman in her 40s sits next to you. You smile and say hi, 
while she looks at you and then through you and around the bar. (laughs) You get old. You lose your anger. It takes too much energy to be angry when you're old. You have more important things to do with your energy, so you hoard it like a dwindling resource. You get old. You find out that it's not always about you. You no longer wait for an opening in the conversation to talk about yourself, your dreams, your accomplishments. It becomes second nature to draw other people into talking about their lives. You're no longer the life of the party making people laugh. You no longer have that neurotic compulsion to be known at any cost. Why should you? You get old. You know yourself. You get old. You need less. Less food, less booze, less sex, less sleep. One gym beam black after dinner savored so it lasts until you fall asleep. You get old. You wake up at 4 a.m. as if to catch every moment of your fading days. You struggle out of bed, let the dogs out, make coffee, light a cigar, and then go outside to get your newspaper. You sit there on the front steps smoking your cigar in the darkness until Jean-Pierre, or some other suitably foreign name, the Haitian paper man pulls up in his battered 25-year-old Toyota. He sees you and gets out to hand you the paper personally. Sorry, Shara, to be late today. No problem, Pierre. You get old. You realize you have known Pierre for at least five years, but you never noticed until now that he's black. You get old. You get colorblind. All you see is a hardworking man with both hands wrapped around the American dream, bending to his will. You get old. Your dogs get old, too. It never dawned on you that when you got them, all six of them, one year after another, that they would all get old one year after another and then die. Right now, they are all between 10 and 16 years old. Their lives are bounded by food and sleep and all the pills that they take, which are lined up next to yours on the counter. (laughs) You get old. Your circle of friends gets smaller, but your very best friends die in your arms. You get old. Small things give you pleasure that were once annoyances. Throwing out the garbage, you meet a neighbor walking his dog. You pet his dog. He pets yours. They both sniff butts and then collapse while you pass the time of day. You get old. You realize that order is freedom. You do your job more professionally, and you prepare for it in advance. No longer on the fly and trusting to fate and skill to see it through, you realize that being able to work at all is God's gift. When you were young, you thought you were God's gift. (laughs) You get old. Your dreams constrict. You no longer expect fame and fortune. Your face on the cover of Time magazine. You pretty much know by now that you're not going to write the next great American novel, 900 pages or less. Your posts are getting smaller, fewer words, but cleaner, you hope. More nuanced, less obvious. Subtle, you like to think, just like your life. Small little essays about getting old, about fear, about death, dogs, and Democrats. Little things that you hope others will like, that will please you more than if you had written War and Peace. You get old. You cry more, a lot more. Not over your lost dreams, your sins, your old age, your impending death. No, you cry for others now. You cry when someone dies too young at age 30, even in a movie. You cry at the sight of our young men and women in camouflage walking through airports on their way to a foreign country and knowing they may not walk back home. You cry at the sight of abused kids and animals staring at you through the pages of your newspaper. 
and you cry when Betsy tells you that she has inoperable cancer and she will never see 60. You get old. You cry for everyone but yourself because you have finally realized that even though it's been a hard life, it has turned out to be a damn fine one, much better than you have any right to expect. You get old. You wish and hope that every person, every pet, could live such a life as you have been privileged to live. You get old. You cry for others because when you were young, you cried only for yourself. When it comes right down to it, it's about our walls coming down. It's about realizing that our walls are the proof of the fears that we have not yet put aside, that perfect love hasn't come in and cast out, purged from us. Age takes down our walls. It will do that. As it starts to take away our fear of the things that we feared when we were young, when that goes away, the walls come down, and what he's talking about starts to take place in our lives. We can wait for age to take down our walls, Or we can just start to see them for what they are. Our inability to grant freedom to others, to live outside of our control, to make their own choices, to be other than us, and no longer just remind us of what we're afraid of. To love like God loves us is to bring down our walls. We can start any time. Let's pray that that time is now. See our walls by looking at our offenses, what offends us, and relaxing our grip that it has to be just this way or no way. And everything starts to change. We move into that spaciousness that is our Father's house, and we can start to see Him for the first time. Let's pray. Ah, Father, you're such a good God. You are so good that we can't hardly believe how good you are. And that's our problem. We're afraid that you're not as good as you're made out to be, Lord. Help us to understand by risking love in our lives. Help us just try to let go of whatever it is we're grasping onto, whatever that thing is that keeps us apart from someone in our house, someone at work, someone here, someone in the parking lot. Help us to let go of that barrier to see them as ourselves to connect with them as ourselves, to realize that position is never more important than relationship. And we can reorder everything. Help us with that, Father, because we need your help. Stones are not yet smooth. But in you, all things are possible. In you, we can hang our hopes and we can hang our confidence. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for being that in our lives. And thank you for loving us first so that we can love after. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, let's all stand.